this a swordplay? Alex, Netflix has announced it wants to bring more faith and family content to its subscribers. You renewing your subscription? Absolutely, Nick. There's nothing better than skipping church so that I can binge watch Veggie Tales. <laughs> there it is. This is Swordplay. We are your hosts for it. Uh, I am Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. How's it going, Nick? Uh, we got a lot of fires out here, and that's wreaking havoc on people. Um, yeah, we're not near them, but we get all the burned-up air down here our way. So, on this episode of Swordplay, Second Timothy chapter one. Second Timothy chapter one. Let this be a reminder to the audience to go read the book of Second Timothy. It's four chapters. Uh, read the whole book, or at least just read the first chapter a couple of times. Come back and listen to the podcast, and you'll be able to follow along with some of our questions. Nick, what are our questions today? Well, it's always a good thing when you read a book to determine why it was written and what was the occasion that uh, caused the writer to put pen to parchment and write it. So first off, we want to talk about the occasion and purpose of the book. What That's is right, yeah. the occasion and purpose of Second Timothy? Yeah, well, Paul, uh, you're not Paul, you're Nick. Well, <laughs> I think Paul wrote to Timothy so that he wouldn't shy away from preaching and from ministry due to the virtual guarantee of suffering for doing so under their current circumstances. That's kind of the feel I got throughout the book, and I'm sure we'll be able to bring that out chapter by chapter. What do you think, Nick? Yeah, this is probably the final letter, the last letter of Paul. Um, it seems as though it was written right before his execution, uh, and that is um, one of the internal evidences of that, one of the internal clues is in 4 verse 6, where he says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. So, facing death... Paul writes this heartfelt epistle to his protege, Timothy, and it's kind of these final instructions from the mentor to the one being mentored. So that's that's kind of what I see. Well, who is Timothy then, the uh, one being mentored? Well, his name means one who honors God. He actually makes his first appearance in Acts 16. Verses 1 through 3, his mother was a Jewish woman who believed in Christ, while his father was a Greek, and presumably uh, he wasn't a believer. Now, as uh, verse 5 here in 2 Timothy 1 indicates, Timothy seems to be a third-generation disciple. Uh, his grandmother Lois, his mother Eunice had uh, a faith this sincere faith that dwells in Timothy. And so uh, that seems to be his heritage. But he's also a constant traveling companion of Paul. He joins him for stints on his second and third missionary journeys. And uh, Paul had a lot of confidence in this young guy. He leaves him in Ephesus as a leader in the church there, and then he writes two letters to him, First and Second Timothy, to encourage him in his ministerial work. Uh, so that's a little bit about Timothy. You got some more on, on this guy, Alex? Uh, the only thing that I uh, thought was interesting, in addition to what you've already said, 
was that in Acts 16, verse 3, Paul actually has Timothy circumcised. That's right. That's pretty interesting because they knew that this was not necessary for salvation. If you want a a proof text for that, you can go to Galatians chapter 2, verse 3, where Paul mentions Titus not feeling compelled to be circumcised. But Timothy was willing to do it. He was willing to follow Paul. Uh, He was willing to become all things to all men in order to win some. That's what Paul says of of himself in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 through 23. So I think there was a special relationship between Timothy and Paul. Uh, Paul likely calls Timothy his son because uh, I think Paul had a direct hand in Timothy's own conversion to Christ. You see this same language used for Onesimus in Philemon uh, chapter 1, verse 10. We mentioned that in our Philemon podcast. So I think uh, Timothy's continued discipleship, the mentoring that he receives from Paul, uh, all of this points towards a very close relationship between the two. Well, Nick, Paul goes on to mention that he serves God with a clear conscience, uh, just like his forefathers. Any idea what you think that means? Yeah, uh, my English Standard Version says uh, ancestors. Uh, Verse 3 says, I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors, your forefathers, as did my uh, ancestors with a clear conscience. Um, Yeah, uh, you know, how, Alex, how did Paul's forefathers serve God with a clear conscience? Um, Well, the word serve there is uh, latruo, and that's the same word word used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, when it describes the service rendered by the Levitical priesthood. But Paul is not a Levite. He's a Benjamite, Hmm. thus revealing, uh, I think, this idea through the New Testament that there is a new priesthood, and it's made up of all believers. You can go to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 for that. And just like in the Old Testament, the priest must first be made clean before he can serve at the altar. Uh, you can read Exodus chapter 30, verses 17 through 21 for an interesting passage on that. So in the same way, uh, the book of Hebrews lets us know that we have been made clean by the blood of Christ to serve at the heavenly altar. Uh, go to Hebrews nine fourteen and ten twenty two. You'll see a specific reference to having our conscience made clean for service to God. So I think Paul and us as Christians today, we serve just like those priestly forefathers did. Uh, First by being made clean, and then in our assistance of helping others to be made clean by the spreading of the gospel, by the building up of the church. Any thoughts, Nick? Um, Yeah, the only thing I would add is uh, the ancestors, the forefathers, uh, their service that they rendered— um, with a clear conscience, that was that was always, I believe, in anticipation of Messiah, the one who would ultimately provide that final cleansing. Um, and so, and there's a lot that can be said about the conscience. Um, the Bible talks about uh, good conscience, clear conscience, uh, bad conscience, evil conscience, conscience seared as with a hot iron. Um, so. A lot more could be said, but we do need to press on. What is what we talked about earlier, verse five, the sincere faith that dwelt in Lois and Eunice, Timothy's grandmother and mother, respectively. Alex, what is a sincere faith? Uh, Nick, it's my understanding that we're not talking about the faith 
you know, the thing believed. Uh, I think we're talking about the act of belief, the genuine belief that God's people have within themselves. Uh, so it's not to be confused with the teaching itself, but the commitment of the one who has been taught. So Paul will appeal to this genuine belief that he sees in Timothy as the grounds for Timothy to stir up his gift, to use his gift, knowing that likely he will suffer uh, in, in result of using his gift. Suffering is a big theme throughout the book of 2 Timothy, but believers, they choose to exercise a sincere faith, and even if it's only the faith the size of a mustard seed, we know from the Gospels that Jesus says even that can move mountains. Mm. So let's talk about this gift that Timothy has. Nick, what is the gift of God that Timothy is to fan and to flame? I mean, there's there's a lot of things here. How is he to, to kindle it afresh? And what would this have anything to do with Paul laying his hands on Timothy? Yeah, you're talking about verse 6 here, which says, For this reason I remind you to fan and to flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. And what I found, there's a, there's a couple different schools of thought pertaining to the actual gift itself. One view is uh, that this is Timothy's gift for ministry. So Timothy's gift was apparently related to administration and organization. That's why Paul left him there in Ephesus to set up the eldership and the diaconate, uh, elders and deacons to establish them. So Paul seems to know that Timothy has become discouraged due to the various challenges that leaders face, uh, maybe facing a hostile congregation because he's a young man. And so Paul, knowing that, says you need to rekindle. And that's the idea there of fan into flame. You're, uh, this is um, uh, this fire is kind of burned down to ashes. You need to, you need to rekindle the fire for your ministry, as it were. So that's one school of thought. The other school of thought, or another school of thought, is that the gift is a special distribution of the Holy Spirit, or it could even be the Holy Spirit himself. So through the power of the Spirit, Timothy was to preach, he was to defend the truth, and I, I believe that fits better in the context here. Because the next verse, and we'll talk about this in a, in a minute, but verse 7 talks about God not giving us a spirit of fear, but power, love, and self-control. Um, that seems to be a mention to the Spirit of God. And then you get a few verses uh, deeper into this in verse 14, and Paul mentions the Holy Spirit living uh, in us, and, and Timothy included in that. So sure. um, that's... That's what I found about the gift of God that Timothy needs to fan into flame. Um, what Did you find anything different? Yeah, I think that my answer would dovetail with what you were saying about a special distribution of the Holy Spirit. Um, Timothy may have a miraculous gift of prophecy, mm. and he may have received that by the laying on of hands by uh, Paul, and I believe also by the, the presbytery, uh, it says in 1 Timothy. So when you read through the book of Acts, we know that there were times when uh, visual, miraculous powers were seen 
as being received by people who had their hands, uh, who had hands laid on them. So the church at Samaria in Acts chapter 8, verses 17 through 19, um, the apostles go up to Samaria, they pray, they lay their hands on people, and it says the Holy Spirit falls upon them or comes upon them. And this was something that people could see, and it was something visual and powerful. And you know that based off of um, the uh, Simon, the magician, he had become a Christian, and he saw that, and he wanted to buy that. He wanted the ability to do the same thing the apostles could do, and he is rebuked by Peter for that. Uh, you go to Acts 19, verse 6, Paul runs into some disciples from Ephesus who had the baptism of John, but not of Jesus. They're baptized, and then he lays his hands on them, and the Spirit falls on them, and then they start speaking in tongues and prophesying. So I think that Timothy did receive a miraculous gift of prophecy by the laying on of Paul's hands. Um, but another thing is that the spirits of the prophets are still subject to the prophets. That's 1 Corinthians 14, 32. So even though Timothy had this gift, he could choose not to use this gift. So Timothy could be intimidated to speak. He could choose not to speak even if he had this miraculous gift. Uh, how would Timothy kindle afresh this gift? By speaking, by choosing to exercise the gift, by choosing to not stop preaching. And we're going to see that exhortation in chapter 4, especially drilled into Timothy. You preach the word. So, uh, l Let me ask you something, because okay. this is um, something in... Um, the churches of Christ that I know we kind of emphasize with regard to the laying on of hands um, and the, the passing on of miraculous abilities, um, how we emphasize that it needs to be apostolic hands, the laying on of apostolic hands. You know, that's why Philip has to call Peter and John up to Samaria. It's Paul who lays his hands on the disciples in Ephesus. Um, Paul, you know, it, it's his hands right that he yeah the laying on of my hands here in verse 6 but it's the elders in 1 verse 4 1 Timothy 4 verse 14 right, right um so do you make that distinction as well or uh as far as it has to be apostolic hands or do you think the council of elders uh pass this particular miraculous manifestation of the spirit onto Timothy uh you know it's I think uh, either scenario is possible. You mentioned the elders laying on hands. Um, I'm reminded of the book of James, right? At, in chapter 5, is anyone sick? Let him call the elders uh, and to have be, have him anointed with oil. And so we may be looking at a time in which um, the elders of those days uh, were also given uh, miraculous powers. In the book of Acts, it talks about how Paul uh, went back through the towns to appoint elders and to lay his hands on those elders, so maybe um, maybe it, the the scope is a little broader than the apostles. Maybe other people had a miraculous gifts imparted to them as well, uh, and maybe they had the ability to impart miraculous gifts. So I, I see that as a possibility that still fits coherently within a certain time frame of the uh, first century church. I don't know. What do you think? I mean, it's a <laughs> it's an interesting question. I mean, it, you know, I understand how we get to where we get with the 
Um, it, it has to be apostolic hands. They're the only ones who could do it. And that's why the miraculous gifts uh, went out. They passed away with the passing of the final apostle. Um, but it is interesting that in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 4, it's the council of elders who laid their hands on. I wonder if there was a double, I mean, there must have been, um, unless Paul joined with the elders uh, there and, and laying hands on with Timothy, but a double laying on of hands where Paul did his to pass on the miraculous gifts, but then the council of elders came on scene to kind of affirm uh, this new ministry upon Timothy. Um, I don't know. It's just interesting. Sure. Um, verse 7 talks about, uh, we mentioned it a few minutes ago, God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. So, Alex, is this the Holy Spirit or just one's own spirit within them? You know, I would say whatever the answer is, it probably needs to go with the verse before it. Yeah. So based on the previous verse and my answer to the previous verse, I would say it's this is probably the Holy Spirit being mentioned. So Timothy's own spirit, it seems like that he and his spirit feels intimidated and ashamed. This is what Paul is trying to talk him out of. But the Holy Spirit who gifted him will also be a source of power and love and discipline. So I, I take verse 7 to be the Holy Spirit. What do you think? I concur. <laughs> um, you know, the spirit of fear, that would probably be Timothy's own spirit. Um, right. Whereas the spirit of God is different. And each of those things, power, love, self-control, those are things that are typical of the spirit of God. He is a spirit of power. And he works powerfully throughout the Gospels and Acts. Even in the Old Testament, you see the power of the Spirit there. Um, love, self-control, those are both fruit of the Spirit that come from him in Galatians chapter 5. So, That's right. Um, yeah, that I am inclined to see the Spirit of God here, and especially connected with the context. Absolutely. Um, so if Timothy's spirit is fearful, verse 8 talks about... Uh, Paul says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Why would Timothy be ashamed? That's a good question, especially considering how we use the word shame. Uh, we usually talk about shameful activity as some sort of moral shortcoming. Yeah, shame on you. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Uh, but shame in the ancient world wasn't always used in that way. Uh, it was used as a sense of status. Uh, it was in regard to how others viewed you, so... To be perceived as shameful doesn't necessarily imply a moral shortcoming in Timothy's culture, uh, but it does imply that he's being looked down upon by others around him. Uh, this lowering of status, uh, it not only reflected upon you, but also upon your whole family, your whole household, your close companions. And so it was common to distance yourself from people who are being viewed as uh ashamed. And so the suffering that Paul was enduring, the suffering that Christ endured, um, this could be viewed in his culture as, as shameful. Uh, this could create a social pressure for Timothy. So I think Paul reminds Timothy of his faithful mother, of his faithful grandmother, encourages him to be a good soldier, not to get entangled in the affairs of everyday life. That's in chapter 2. That all of this suffering and faithful perseverance that Timothy sees in Paul and in certain other Christians, if Timothy does likewise, 
though in the culture around him he might be considered ashamed, in the eyes of God, he will be considered a vessel for honor. And that was the other side of the coin. It was you were striving for honor. You were trying to run from shame. And this is kind of part of the shame honor cultures of antiquity. Chapter 2, verse 20 through 21 brings the idea that Timothy will be a vessel for honor in God's eyes if he stays faithful, if he perseveres in the midst of suffering. I don't know. Any thoughts, Nick? No, I think that's that's right on the money, um, especially regarding the the um, shame honor culture uh, of antiquity. We like you said, we don't really get that sometimes in our Western culture. But um, uh, you know, one of the things we mentioned about the occasion of this book is Paul is he's facing certain death and. It seems as though he's in a Roman prison, but how do we know that Paul is in jail based on what he says, Alex? Well, we get uh, four different insights from just the first chapter alone. So hmm. it says in verse 8 that he is a prisoner. So, But he says he's a prisoner of Christ, so does he mean this uh, spiritually or literally or both? It says in verse 12 that he suffers these things. Well, what are these things? It's probably referring to the things he's already mentioned, that his suffering and his being a prisoner. But then you get to verse 16, and he throws in the idea saying he's in chains. Hmm. And then you get to uh, verse 17, it says that uh, Onesiphorus found him in Rome. And so if he's in Rome, this would match the uh, church history and tradition of Paul being released from his first Roman imprisonment that we see at the end of Acts, making it all the way to Spain, to Tarshish, and then back. And on his way back, he's imprisoned a second time. And this is the second imprisonment that Paul um, is undergoing. And I think there's some more things in chapter 4 that I'd like to bring out when we get there that speaks to this. Uh, But he does expect in chapter 4, verse 6, to be uh, poured out like a drink offering and to depart very soon so i think he expects this to be the end uh i don't know paul uh seems seems that paul is in jail <laughs> yeah no that's that's uh um a mountain of evidence that supports that conclusion um how about verse nine here um where he talks about god has saved us called us to a holy calling um he includes timothy in that us that's the plural pronoun there. So what is Paul and Timothy's holy calling? You know, Nick, we did our Second Thessalonians podcast not too long ago. And in Second Thessalonians 2.14, it talks about our call that we uh, were called by the gospel. So this could be just the calling that we all receive by the gospel. That's one possibility. Hmm. On the other hand... Paul goes on to say in verse 11 that he has a specific role to play in his calling and in his proclaiming of the gospel as a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. And Timothy seems to have a similar calling. Paul could be hinting at a specific calling to proclaim the gospel in a time period that produced so much suffering for the church. Paul is probably trying to encourage Timothy not to abandon his holy calling 
they have been set apart. That's that holiness for suffering. And this, this idea, I think, is very specific to Paul and Timothy, but it would not disqualify the Christian today for also being set apart to the same call of suffering. So the Christian, when you pledge your loyalty to Jesus, uh, you are making certain agreements. And part of that agreement is that uh, you, you are not your own anymore. You've been bought with a price. You've agreed to give your life to the one who has abolished death, even if that means you have to stay faithful unto death. The one who abolished death has promised immortality. That's, that's the hope of the, uh, of the gospel. So what are your thoughts on the holy calling, Nick? Yeah, um, the calling uh, through the gospel, I like that. Um, and we have been called to a life of holiness. Um, part of what he says over in the Second Thessalonians passage is about the sanctification aspect of this. You know, there are, there are um, times in the epistles, in Paul, in Peter's writings, where you get the gospel kind of in, encapsulated in miniature. Um, and I think verses 9 and 10 here do that, where God, he loves us with this incredible love. He sends Christ to die for us, to save us. Uh, we have been called through the gospel and it's not because of our works, it's not because of our own purpose and grace, but it's because of what God did in Christ. And then we can have eternal life, right? It goes on here into verse 10 to talk about life and immortality. And so eternal life is ours through faith in Christ. Um, Jesus broke the power of death uh, in his resurrection. I know I'm kind of bleeding over here into the next question we have, which is related to verse 10 about how um, our Savior, Christ Jesus, appeared who abolished death. So, Alex, what does it mean for Christ to abolish death? This is, this is pretty interesting because Paul already said in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 24 through 26, that when the end comes, Jesus will hand the kingdom over to the Father after abolishing all rule, all authority, all power, and the last enemy that he'll abolish will be death. So which is it, Paul? Is he already does he has he already abolished death, like he says here in Second Timothy, or is that something that will happen at the end, like he told the Corinthians? What is this abolishing of death? I think that uh, the verse here in Second Timothy that we're looking at, this verse indicates that through the gospel, spiritual death has been abolished for the believer. Jesus said uh, in Matthew ten twenty eight. Do not fear those who can kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. So the resurrection, eternal life, the saving of one's soul, I think these would be called to mind, especially if physical suffering was imminent, as it seems it was, for Paul and Timothy. So I guess, you know, one one could be talking about the spiritual death that he's already abolished, and that's the gospel, but the physical death... Um, that will be the last enemy abolished when he returns. So that's kind of my thinking. What do you think? Yeah, especially in close connection with uh, abolished death and and brought life and immortality to light. I think 
I think both of those things kind of go hand in hand with one another. The now and not yet aspect of this also right, can, right. can be factored in. So, Well, Nick, in verse 11, Paul says he's a, a preacher, he's an apostle, he's a teacher. Are there really, uh, you know, fine nuances to these words or are there like hard distinctions? What, what's the difference between the preacher, apostle, and teacher? Yeah, um, on the one hand, I mean, they all refer to the same guy, right? They all refer in reference to Paul. So they could be, he could be kind of using them in a synonymous way. Um, but what I found also is they could each have their own particular shade of nuance to them. The preacher uh, could be in reference to Paul's evangelistic efforts in heralding, proclaiming, preaching the gospel. Apostle could be in reference to his authority, um, his apostolic authority, and uh, that authority needed in proclaiming. Teacher could just be in reference to his desire to make clearly known the word, and that would be kind of the role of the teacher. So um, those those seem to be uh, the differences between those uh, three terms. Well, he uses it also, by the way, in First um, Timothy. Um, I think I can find it real quick. First Timothy, chapter two and verse seven. Yeah, there it is. Interesting. So it seems that the overlap is the speaking aspect. You know, all of these require speaking, but each one has its own. Um, subtle purpose and it just kind of makes you think like I could see someone saying you know we still have preachers today we still have teachers today uh, why not apostles and yet apostle can be used in a few different ways right Nick yeah um, and by the way it's a it's a very good way to put it to to bring to show where the the three circles kind of overlap as it were um, but apostle in its broadest sense just means a sent one and so we do have people, missionaries, that we send out all over the place, right, Alex? I mean, you're kind yeah. of, yeah. you're kind, you've been sent by uh, the Northside Church of Christ as they're your, they're your sponsoring congregation up to the uh, Twin Cities area in, in Minnesota. So, in that broad definition, we still do kind of have apostles, but it's different than Paul, Peter, and the rest. So sure, and I can see why we would be uh, careful to use the word apostle and applying it to people today, even though in the broader sense it can apply to people today, because, you know, there's the fear that there's going to be some guy who says, well, if I'm an apostle, then I have, you know, the same authority as Paul or Peter, or one of the 12 or something like that. And uh, you can you can find them today. Dr. Frederick Casey Price is an apostle. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he's on TV. Yeah. Yeah. There are all kinds of different um christian stripes who will still proclaim this this apostolic authority and what they mean by that is what they say is with the same authority as paul and peter and james and john and all the writers of the bible well paul um i keep calling you paul you're not paul <laughs> you're nick <laughs> nick verse 12 paul yep. says that he has entrusted uh something to to him i imagine jesus or or god 
and for a certain day he just calls that day so what's all this ambiguity here what has been entrusted and what day has it been entrusted for yeah the text reads i'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what he has entrusted to me that's what the text reads but there's a footnote in my english standard version that says uh or what i have entrusted to him and what's interesting is because uh, the question is 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 it paul who has been entrusted with something, or has he entrusted something to God? And the phrase could be translated either way. Now, if it's the former, uh, Paul has been entrusted with something, what he's been entrusted with could be the gospel. Uh, If it's the latter, that is, he's entrusted something to God, well, you have a lot of options there. It could be his life, it could be his converts, it could be his work. Um, So a couple different directions that could be understood just based on how you translate it. Now, as far as that day, it seems as though the day he's referencing there is the return of Christ and and the final coming of Jesus. Um, And so God, Christ, they're able to guard uh, whatever's been entrusted either to him or what he's entrusted to them. They're able to guard it. All right. So that's a declaration of the power of God. Absolutely. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I'm I'm right on track with you. You know, in chapter 4, verse 18, Paul will say, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. I, I tend to, to see it as the uh, Paul entrusting of himself and his work, his converts, um, until that day. That seems to make a lot of sense. Paul will mention or give allusions at the very least to that day several times in each chapter. So again, I mean, this is a heartfelt letter. Paul's at the end of his life, at the end of his ministry. Well, Nick, um, verse 13, we have this uh, very important verse. It says, Guard, uh, retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Some translations say the pattern of sound words. Nick, what is the standard or pattern of sound words? Well, obviously, that's the pattern of worship. (laughs) So no musical instruments, communion every Sunday, and the rest. Um, Right? I mean, that's kind of how um, our brotherhood has understood this we build a, a pattern theology uh, based on on this phrase follow the pattern of sound words that you heard from me but is that really what Paul's after probably not um, this is the same word that he uses in chapter first Timothy chapter 1 and verse 16 and he actually uses it of himself how he is an example of Christ's perfect patience uh, so it doesn't seem as though he's using it, at least in the the pastoral epistles, if you will, uh, in a creedal sense, like he has a, a creed, a formula that he is exhorting Timothy to teach. Um, and, and so that would touch things like liturgy, right? Worship, order of worship. Um, but rather, it, it seems like he's saying, look, you heard a message from me. That message would be the gospel. And so... Uh, he's exhorting Timothy to teach that same message, that same gospel. And we know what a serious thing it is when we distort or pervert the gospel. So, yeah, follow 
there's a there's a pattern of healthy teaching of of healthy uh, words, and that that's the gospel. Stick with that. Yeah, I uh, I'll definitely second that response, Nick. It seems to correspond well with. Paul's urging of Timothy not to get caught up in worldly chatter or empty chatter. Um, he'll bring this comparison out in chapter two, and we'll talk about that next week. You know, this this seems to be about gospel content, gospel behavior versus mm-hmm. non-gospel content and non-gospel behavior. This seems to be the issue here. And so even if it is doctrinally correct to uh, have, you know, acapella music or to take the Lord's Supper every week, that scope is just way too narrow to encompass the standard of sound words, the pattern of sound words. Uh, It needs to be a bit broader than that to fit the context of 2 Timothy. Uh, How about the next verse here? Um, And and this is, we've got a couple things here that we need to talk about. it, the text says, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Uh, that's my English standard. Now, let's start at the end here and talk about, first of all, what is the treasure and how should Timothy guard it? And how would he guard it through the Holy Spirit? Yeah, those are really interesting questions. Uh, my translation says treasure. Yours sounds like it says deposit. Yeah. Um, here's one possibility right being fair with the context the previous verse says you have this standard or pattern of sound words so maybe that is the treasure that timothy has to guard through the holy spirit is the pattern of sound words that gospel uh message and behavior um so it may may it may refer to the gospel itself uh the galatians were told not to accept a different gospel so this is important And as a prophet, Timothy would need to guard the gospel from false teachers. So that would fit. Here's another possibility, though, and this is going to be my preference. The other possibility is that the treasure refers to the people that Timothy has been entrusted to look after. That is the church at Ephesus. I I think he's at Ephesus at this time. And 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 15 through 16, it brings to light the importance of Timothy's behavior and teaching among these Christians. Paul says that you watch yourself closely and your teaching very closely, for in doing so you'll save yourself and your listeners. We're talking about people's souls here, so you do need to guard your teaching and your behavior, but it's for the sake of the people, of the listener. Here's the thing. Jesus told a parable about the kingdom of heaven, and one of the parables, he says it's like a a treasure that was hidden in a field, and a man comes upon it, he finds it, he's joyful, and he, he goes and he hides it again in the field, but then he leaves, he sells all that he has so that he could purchase that field. And when right. he purchases the field, he is joyful. My interpretation of that parable is that the treasure is the faithful believer and this faithful believer god finds out with the gospel and he has paid for that believer through jesus so the church the believer this is treasure in god's eyes that he was looking for that's why he sent jesus this is the gospel to be found and paid for so i think the holy spirit will assist timothy in guarding um these people and 
the assistance will likely come through the prophetic gift that Timothy has been given that he has to exercise. So maybe maybe I'm splitting hairs, but I I still think the treasure here is the people. What do you think, Nick? Uh, well, I guess a follow-up. So do you see Timothy as having kind of more of a, a pastoral role um, in the Ephesian congregation? Yeah, I don't think it can be discounted at all. I mm. mean, he is to care for these people. Look at how Paul tells Timothy to handle these people, even the ones who are in opposition to him. He says in chapter 2 at the end there, to be gentle with them. You correct them with gentleness. Uh, you're hoping that God will bring them to repentance. I mean, you really have to care for people, even the people who disagree with you, in order to fulfill your ministry. I, th- I think Timothy's role in ministry definitely overlapped with pastoral care. Hmm. Well, that's going to bring us, I believe, to our tough text. Tough for text. So, Nick, this is a tough question. Um, will you tell us how the Holy Spirit dwells within us? This is in verse 14. Yes, I will tell you. <laughs> um, here's the thing. This isn't difficult in uh, in the sense that, um, you know, nobody believes or people um, argue about whether or not the Holy Spirit dwells within us. Just about everybody agrees that the Bible teaches about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. What it boils down to is that little word, how, right? How does he do it? And there are a few different options that uh, I ran across, a few different views, theories about it. And one that is very narrow is what's known as the representative view, and that is that the Holy Spirit indwells us through the Word, that is, through the Bible. Um, And so indwelling language in the New Testament, like is found here in verse 14, is either figurative or it should be understood as the word. And there's a lot of uh, scriptural jujitsu that happens here where, you know, people, people <laughs> scriptural make... Scriptural jujitsu. <laughs> they make these charts that show how the word and the spirit, they do the same thing and therefore they must be the same thing. And that's um, that's a very bad way to build pneumatology and also... Um, it's very bad for our Christology as well because what ends up happening is you can do the same thing with the Father and the Son. They do the same thing, right? So, uh, and, and lay them down side by side. So that's just a bad way to do it. Conflating the Word of God and the Spirit of God, that's problematic to say the least. There's also the charismatic view. Uh, this is the view that the Holy Spirit literally, personally, and miraculously indwells um, the Christian. And so Christians can perform miracles, and there are some who still believe that that practice goes on today. There's what we'll call the quasi-charismatic view as well. Uh, The Holy Spirit did miraculously indwell and operate in the apostolic church, but um, the age of miracles is over. So the Holy Spirit indwells us literally, personally, but also non-miraculously. There's other theories that we could uh, look at. Um, I'll just give kind of my view here, and that is that the Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit literally, 
collectively and supernaturally indwells the church. And so the results of that are, if I'm a member of the body, I too get to drink of the one spirit. Also, the Holy Spirit is going to help me live according to the community ethic. That is, the Holy Spirit is going to help me be holy. Um, And so uh, that's kind of where I land. Literally, he indwells us, but it's, it's a collective thing. And the language here shows that the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Plural. And it that's right, and it's also a supernatural thing. Not miraculous, but definitely beyond our physical, natural beings. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, I think I'd have to uh, ditto on that last response there, the literal, supernatural, and collective indwelling, emphasis on the collective indwelling. I think that matches up very nicely with the Old Testament indwelling of the Spirit in the temple, except now the temple is us, and we cover the whole world. So the spirit is with us, the temple, wherever we go. So this is a collective thing. Like we said, you know, we're spread out. He's collectively with all of us as opposed to each individual inside. Here's a food for thought, right? Because when we start to talk about this collective indwelling, um, logistics start to come up. So it's like, how (laughs) and so (laughs) we can say you know it's a mystery all day long that doesn't really help so here's some food for thought and this is something that's been rolling around in my mind for a few months now Um, in the book of acts the pouring out of the holy spirit on the day of pentecost seems to be followed by an increase in angelic activity Uh, if you read closely through the book of acts you'll see that angels are often mentioned in conjunction with the spirit's actions so one example in acts chapter 8 verse uh, 26 and 29 uh, i believe it's verse 26 where it says an angel told philip to go you know talk to this eunuch at this chariot And verse 29 says, the Spirit told Philip to do this. And so you have this conflation of the Spirit with an angel. So here's my thought. Uh, Perhaps the angelic hosts are somehow connected to the Holy Spirit in helping the Spirit to accomplish this um, collective indwelling for the worldwide church. I don't know uh, if that makes sense because I haven't fully fleshed it out, but I think there (laughs) might be something there. That's interesting. You know what's funny? As I was thinking about it, you were talking. I think just about every episode, we're, we've worked in a discussion about angels. <laughs> so, <laughs> so there's there's your one for this episode. Um, there you go. Let's, fit, let's round out the book here. There's several uh, folks who are mentioned in the last couple verses here, right? Yeah, that's strange. Um, like... Who are who are these guys, Nick? We have uh, Fagellus, uh, Hermogenes, or Hermogenes. Um, who are these guys? Why would they be mentioned with people turning away from Paul in Asia? And why would people turn away from Paul in Asia? I mean, I thought the I thought the Asia Minor, you know, churches. I thought they loved Paul. What's going on here? Yeah, that's that's a good question about that. I'm gonna deal with the the actual guys because um they are asian christians it seems they turned away from paul he says that um that that is to say they deserted him in his time of need they deserted him 
Um, interesting note about their names, Phygelus means fugitive, Hermogenes means born of Hermes. Um, now, yeah, uh, Asia Minor people loving Paul. Is there something in Acts that I think is escaping me right now? Is there something I'm missing there? Did they run him out of town or something? I, I can't... Yeah, well, I mean, the unbelieving Jews from the synagogues in each town were, like, tracking him down from town to town. Uh, but there were always faithful converts and Christians who helped Paul escape uh, to get out before something worse would happen. Remember in Ephesus, right? They were like, Paul, do not go into the Colosseum. This is serious. And he wanted to go. He was like, no, no, I'll go. And they're like, nope, nope, don't do it. We're not going to let you. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh so what's uh yeah what's going on i don't know um there's also i'm trying to think um could be here all day right (laughs) the um um, the galatians they were up in asia minor right and he had written to the galatian congregation he was pretty harsh in that letter oh that's true i wonder if like you know paul says in there have i become your enemy because i tell you the truth i wonder if phygelus and hermogenes were like yep <laughs> you are persona non grata with us because um we did not like the tone of that i don't know it just who knows well if persecution is increasing um could there be some teachers rising up saying um you know there are there's plenty of space for compromise here there's no need for us to suffer and to be persecuted by uh, the Jews or by the Roman authorities, um, all we have to do is uh, go along with this, this, and this. Could, could there be some of that going on, perhaps? Sure. Yeah. Sure, there could. I mean, who wants to show up to Paul's trial if uh, it may entail their own imprisonment? That's right. That's, yeah. Well, who's Onesiphorus? What do you think about that? Yeah, verse 16. Um, he was a Christian. It seems he sought out Paul while he was in prison in Rome, ministered to him while he was in chains, refreshing Paul. That's the uh, way it's translated in my English Standard Version. Um, his name means prophet bringer. So that's about everything we know about him. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Um, well, it's interesting that Paul will mention so many personal names in this letter. As I was reading through the whole thing, I was surprised how many people yeah. he's going to call out by name so i don't know maybe that has something to do with him being you know in the last days of his own life and he wants to uh make sure timothy has a heads up on certain folks call him out yeah one thing also um phygelus and hermogenes kind of stand in contrast with onesiphorus not kind of they do stand in contrast with onesiphorus right so you got like on the one hand kind of bad leadership if these guys are leaders versus Onesiphorus who represents um, good leader and I think that's instructive even for us today there's always going to be bad guys right bad leaders who do bad things Um, and so on the one hand there's a warning but those guys who do good things Onesiphorus and you know there's others that Paul names in other epistles um, these guys are to be honored um and especially verse 18 may the lord grant him to find mercy on the uh from the lord on that day um there's that day again yeah there there it is again and um uh you well know all the service he rendered at ephesus 
our works go before us. Some some guys, you know, they cover up their sin and try to make it look good and all that. But that'll come out too in the end. Paul says that in First Timothy. But uh, those good leaders who serve well, uh, they're worthy of the mercy of the Lord and whatever honor we can render them. Yeah, I think that's right. And it just goes to show you that even in an age where they did have uh, miraculous gifts and they had apostles in their midst, that there was still conflict, there was still struggle, there was still uh, good and evil, and it's a struggle that we will continue to fight today until that day when Christ returns and uh, abolishes all of those things. Well, Nick, um, I think we definitely want to remind our reader or our listeners to pray for the California fires that you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. Uh, I can't imagine what it would be like to have all of your stuff literally go up in flames. Yeah, a lot of people being hurt by that. Um, so definitely keep that in prayer. And um, yeah, moving forward. Yeah. Well, next week we will jump into 2 Timothy chapter 2. And until then, uh, if you have any questions, be sure to email us at swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. And go on to iTunes, Google Play as well. Search Swordplay and get caught up with all the previous episodes we've done. And uh, like it, subscribe it, review it, and let us know what you think so we can get the word out about it. We have surpassed 1,000 downloads now. Hey, uh, right on. We are uh, inching to 1,100. So uh, that's our first milestone, I think, as a podcast. And as our listener base increases, uh, more episodes will be um, listened to that we've already recorded. And I think this will just sort of snowball. We want this to be a tool that can help you in your Christian walk. So if we can do a better job, email us, give us your feedback. Uh, We are always open to constructive criticism. We appreciate every listener. Nick, any other thoughts? I just want to again say thanks for listening. All right. That's been another episode of Swordplay. Swordplay.